Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Well, it's about this time of the year where you can kind of get to the four, five-month period into the year, and you kind of ask yourself, where has the year gone? We all do that, you know. But what I like to do at this time of the year, I like to take stock of where my heart is at in relation to God. I don't know if you like from time to time, you take stock of where your heart is at in relation to God. Am I the only person in the room? It's always healthy to ask yourself, where am I at in my relationship with Jesus? As I begin to read scripture, I I, I see that there are some recommended titles or ways of addressing Jesus. Um, These are not the names of God, like we heard from Pastor Brandon Cormier about the names of God. I'm talking about certain titles that are in Scripture. These are ways of addressing God, the ways of addressing Jesus that give us insight into the way that we ought to relate to Him. See, the way that we address someone gives you insight into who you are in relation to them. I uh, went to the doctor recently, which I do begrudgingly from time to time. I go to the doctor for like a health checkup. So it's my annual health checkup. A man of my age, apparently, it's a good thing to do. And when I go and see my doctor, he's been my doctor for a long time, I address him as Dr. So-and-so. And so when you listen into the conversation, it's very clear to you that I am patient. He is doctor. Makes sense to you? What I address him gives you insight into how I see him in relation to me. When I call my sons Jensen and Isaiah, I often use the phrase son. I say, son, come here. Son, we need to have a chat. Son, can you do that for me? When you hear me say that, you clearly understand parent, offspring, father, son. Makes sense to you? So what we call people gives us insight into how we see them in relation to us. Now, one of the common titles of address that we say We sing and we pray when it comes to God is Lord. How many of you have ever used that word Lord before? How many of you use it when you pray? Dear Lord Jesus, how many of you use that word Lord? Right? Do you ever think about that usage of that word Lord and what that actually means to Him as well as to you? Because I promise you, if you look in Scripture, it's not a cheap word. It's not a filler word that you use when you're singing. It's not a filler word that you use when you pray. The word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios to mean this. He to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has power of deciding. It is the master, the Lord, the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner or the one who has control of the person, the master. It is a title of honor expressive of respect and reverence with which servants greet their master. This title is given to God, the Messiah. Wow. Think about the gravity of that word, Lord, curios. So if you call him Lord, there is actually an expectation. The expectation is that he occupies his role as Lord and we occupy our role as his subjects. Don't get quiet on me now. Come on. Do you understand that when you, when you call him Lord, there is an expectation on your behalf that he is Lord, therefore you are his subject. If you don't understand the full gravity of what it means to call Jesus your Lord, then I promise you so much of the Bible will not make sense to you. Luke chapter 6 says this in verse 46. Jesus actually chastises his disciples. He's having a discipleship conversation. He's not talking to the crowd. He's not not talking to the Gentiles. He's not talking to the unsaved. He's saying this to his disciples. He says, but why do you call me 
Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the Lord on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Wow. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Can I speak to you today on the subject, the Lordship, Stewardship, Partnership? I know there's a lot of ship words, okay? But I couldn't find a better title. The Lordship, Stewardship, Partnership. Today I'm going to do some flat-out teaching, big-time teaching today. Is that okay? Elbow someone in the ribs and say, are you awake? If they are awake, that's good. If they're not awake, they, are, they should be now, okay? So here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, why do you call me curious, curious, Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say, there is no vagaries in this sentiment. What Jesus was trying to teach the disciples is that if I'm your Lord, there is an expectation on my behalf that you actually live your life in submission and obedience to me. There should be an evidence of what you say being lived out in your life. See, when you acknowledge him as your Lord, then what you say should also be expressed in your lifestyle, your choices, your decisions, your attitudes, your behaviors, your ways of thinking. Come on, I need somebody to say amen with me. Someone can only be your curios, your Lord, if you've actually handed mastery of your life over to them. And if when you've handed mastery of your life over to them, then guess what? You are no longer the master of your life. He is. Some of you are going, I don't like where the sermon is going. I, don't, I, I wish I didn't come to church today. This is an incredibly life-giving sermon, right? The world has taught you that if you were to hand the mastery of your life over to God, it's oppressive. Christianity is oppressive. I'm about to show you today how to build your life on rock. Come on, it is incredibly liberating today. This is where so many, many believers never take the next step of discipleship. We believe this because we believe in, in receiving Him into our lives, but discipleship is the giving away of the mastery of our lives to Him. It is the conviction that we live according to His will, His agenda, and it's a trust that if we were to live our lives according to Him, He is Master, we are servant, He is Lord, we are subject, He is Father, we are child. Lordship is a deep conviction of our place in relation to His place, our position in relation to His position. So I want to say this to you today, if you ever called Jesus your Lord, He is Lord of your life, therefore you are not. What a wonderful thing to be. What a wonderful thing to not be the Lord of our lives. What does it mean to have a master or a Lord over our lives? It actually means that I don't live according to my feelings, my appetites, my desires, my own ideas as to what's best for me. Thank God I'm not left to my own devices. 
It actually means that I don't get to do what I want with my sex drive. It actually means I don't get to do what I want with my own agenda. It actually means I don't get to do what I want to put into my body. I don't, I, I don't get to, to decide what I allow my eyes to see. I don't get to do whatever I want with my money or my time or every facet of my life. If he's Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If he's Lord, then I'm living my life in subservience to him. What a wonderful way to live. Him being my Lord means I get the privilege of building my life on His Word, His guidance, His grace, His commands. And and I have this conviction that when I do, I am building my life on a rock. And because He who is my Lord and my Master knows better than I do for my life, I get to build my life on the rock of Jesus Christ. See, without a Lord and Master, I would hate to think what I'd be like. Without having a curiosity, without having a Lord, without living my life in obedience to Him, I'll tell you what, my marriage would be a complete mess. The rest of you go, no, no, I'll be all right. Come on now. You would be the same. Without a Lord, your life would literally be a mess. I don't know where my mental health would be today if, if I didn't have a Lord. I don't know where I'd be today. You know what? My kids would probably hate me. I would probably be an absolute jerk without a Lord. So would you. Thank God we've got a Lord. Thank God we haven't just got a Savior who saved us, but we've got a Lord who invites us to build our lives on solid rock. Thank God He presents Himself to us as our curios, our Lord. I want to suggest to you today, don't just relate to Jesus as Savior. Relate to Him as Lord. If you've ever cried out, Jesus My Lord, understand the gravity of what you're saying. He is your curios, He's your Lord, He's your Master. Can I go a little bit deeper? I'm laboring this because I'm laying a foundation. So intrinsically woven into this revelation of Lordship then is what His Lordship expects from us. If He is Master, then we are His subjects. Curios also means owner. If He's an owner, then guess what? You're His steward. What is a steward? Well, a steward or stewardship in the Bible is the Greek word oikonomia, meaning to manage, to oversee, or to look after that which belongs to somebody else. Let me explain this. Lordship, curios. If he is your Lord, then immediately, if there is lordship, there has to be stewardship. Do you understand that? Right? He can't be Lord, master, owner if there is no stewardship on our behalf, right? So lordship and stewardship is always a partnership. So if there is lordship and there is stewardship and we're the stewards, he is the master, I've got some news for us. We don't own anything. Some of you are going, what? What do you mean? Is he preaching heresy? No, I'm not. It's in the Bible. Psalm 24, verse 1. One of my favorite scriptures in the world. It says this. The Lord owns the earth and all it contains, the world and all who live in it. Wow. 
Some of you think, what, 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 what do you mean? What, what about my house? What about my car? What about, what about my this? What about my that? The Bible tells us that it is the Lord that owns it all. Do you know that your body is not your own? Your money is not your own. Your possessions are not really your possessions. It all belongs to God. According to Scripture, the curios, the master, the owner, the possessor is what owns it all, and he enables us to steward what belongs to him. This was the very first expectation that God had with humanity. Think about the Genesis conversation, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So we understand that we are his image bearers. And then in Genesis 2 verse 15, God tells us his expectations of us because he is the creator, he is the curator. says that the Lord, took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and says, you own this. He's, no, he says, I'm going to put you in the garden to tend and keep it. That expression, tend and keep, is the Hebrew expression, samar, which is exactly the same word as oikonomia in the Greek, meaning to watch over, keep charge of, oversee, and take responsibility for that which belongs to somebody else. Make sense to you? So the very first assignment that humanity was ever given was not to go and find out how pleasurable things are, was not to go and figure out your life on your own. The very first assignment upon creation, the curios, the Lord said, I'm inviting you to have a stewardship responsibility because when lordship and stewardship partner together, we got a good thing happening. God created you to be his stewards because he is the master. When God breathed lungs into, uh, air into Adam's lungs and his eyes were opened, Adam didn't walk around going, oh, wow. Ah, oh, you see that really, really cool animal over there with a really long neck and like the brown and white sort of spotted coat with the long legs and, and that really regal, ah, 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 that animal's mine. And that big animal over there with a big mane, you know, that, that, with a big growly voice, that animal's mine. Um, but that, that, that miserable looking animal there with a the long pink tail that, that squeals, um, that could be yours, God. And that, uh, that fat wobbly thing, let's just call that a wombat, give that to the Aussies. Um, um, but these, these other cool animals, they're mine. No, no. When Adam was created, all that he saw was that it all belonged to God, and he was just a steward of all that belonged to God. Are you following me so far? Adam lived completely aligned with God. God created and owned the whole earth. Adam was just his steward. His entire paradigm before sin entered into the world, was creator, master, father, steward. Make sense to you? Owner, steward. I tend to all that belongs to God until that one day when the serpent suggested to Eve, don't you want to be like God, I know, I know God said to you, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but don't you want to experience just for a little bit what it's like to possess things? Don't you want to know what it's like to feel like you own something? Eat of the fruit. It's going to taste so good. And then suddenly when sin entered into the world, a brand new paradigm was opened to humanity called possession. Prior to that, prior to that, humanity had no frame of reference. Suddenly, it's mine. It's my thing. 
It belongs to me. It's my stuff. It's my body, my choice. It's my decision. Don't touch what's mine. It's the most primal of all carnal instincts. You see it in a two-year-old. Nobody teaches them to snatch toys. They just do. Hello, I know you all think your two-year-olds are really the most perfect thing on the planet. No one teaches them how to snatch stuff and go, that's mine. Where does that come from? Is the innate desire that it is my thing I want. You know the word ownership or possession in the original Hebrew Aramaic out of the concordance is the word baal, meaning to be lord over or possessor of something. It eventually became a cult of blood covenants and things that were their own people. And so, so catch this. Instead of living as stewards of all that belongs to God, our carnality now tells us to live as possessors of things when that was not how God intended for us to live. Now you can see the slippery slope of what it is to have the carnal human condition of possession. Suddenly, now, comparison, lust of the eyes, covetousness, envy, jealousy, resentment, Entitlement, they become powerful driving emotions. Now, suddenly, it gives rise to all its kissing cuddles. Now, we there's cheating, there's lying, there's manipulation. Come on, there's shortchanging people. Come on, there's shafting people here and there. That's that's just corner cutting. Suddenly, all of these things have opened the why because we were never created by God to be owners or possessors, only stewards. I need a resounding amen from a church today. And so, we wonder why sometimes the more things we possess the more bound up we become. The more stuff we have, sometimes the more conflicts we're weighed down by. That investment property that we bought that we thought was such a good idea, now we've got that really, really difficult neighbor in that investment property. Now he's taking us to court. Hello, come on now, hello. That property development we thought was a really fantastic idea, now the partners in that property development have all gone a bit weird. They're causing trouble. That car we're trying to buy, now we decided it's like a 12-month waiting period. Now we're stuck without a car. Now we're worried. Come on, are you out there? right? That boat we just bought, that second-hand boat, we realized, oh my gosh, the insurance doesn't cover that, and now how are we going to repair that, and it can't be repaired? And on and on it goes. Then we end up wondering why we don't just have things, but things have us. Because we were never created to be owners, only stewards. This awakening of bow, of possession, was the reason why God had to institute in the Old Testament laws that governed and informed people how to navigate this now inferior way of living. You can, when you read the Old Testament, you can almost see God facepalming. It's like, okay, this is not how I intended for man to live, but you know what? They've made a mess of it, so let's try and help them. Things like Exodus chapter 22, verse 10, says this. Like when you read it, you literally go, oh my gosh, what is going on here? You say, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep it, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in effect... And it's stolen from him. He shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. And on and on it goes. It sounds like a legal contract. The reason why God had to do this, this was not how God intended for people to live. But he thought, oh man, 
If that is what is going on, I'm going to have to help them out. And on and on it goes. This ownership stuff is a mess. Most corporate legal issues come from earthly, man-made, fallen-natured constructs of ownership. Think about lawsuits, wills, powers of attorney, family law courts, all deal with this one never-ending source of conflict. Who owns what? Ask every divorce lawyer. Ka-ching! Who owns what? That's how I make my money. Trying to sort it out for you. This hasn't changed. This is not God's intended purpose. God had to institute law to help us navigate this whole thing of possession. But the law was a cobweb cleaning exercise. All it did was simply reveal the true need to kill the spider. We are not meant to be Baal people. We're meant to be Samar, oikonomia people. We're meant to be his stewards. That's why Jesus came to restore us back to stewardship by saying, I am your Lord, not just your Savior. That's why the gospel is full of parables of Jesus talking about masters and servants, what he gives, what the master gives, and holding the servants accountable. It's always that if you you don't understand or accept lordship, so much of the Bible won't actually apply to you or you reject it out of hand. It just won't make sense to you. The whole of the New Testament reminds us through the life of the apostles and the early church that it all belongs to God. Paul was drilling this into this half-Greek, half-Jew protege of his called Timothy. He says this to Timothy, Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6 verse 7. says, Timothy, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So you think you're an owner? You think you own so much stuff? You think you got so much stuff? I want to remind you, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We were all born naked and screaming. And when we die, we can't take any of what we've accumulated here on earth. This this revelation that it all belongs to God has completely changed my life. There was a season there where I wrestled with all of this. I wrestled with scripture. But this has been the single most liberating, life-changing revelation for the way Christy and I live, what we prioritize, what we spend time pursuing, obsessing on, ruminating on. Do you know that this is not my church? I'm just a steward of this church. My car is registered in my name, but it belongs to God. I didn't bring it into this world. I can tell you what, if I die tomorrow, I can't take my car with me. My house, my clothes, my Apple products, my guitars, my fishing rods, my bank account, my flat screen TV, it all belongs to Him. My purpose is to steward it while I'm here on this earth. And I tell you what, this is completely at odds with what the world tells you. The world tells you that the more you have, the better you'll feel about yourself. The more things you own and more money you have mean that you'll be living a better life. So in this life, do whatever you can to get as much as you can. Friend, I have a bachelor's degree in business and commerce. I have a postgraduate in it. I also have a master's degree in Christian ministry. And I can tell you now, the word of God trumps the word of the world any day of the week. I know which is going to help me build my life on rock and which is going to help me build my life on sand. I know that my place of curious lordship toward him and me as servant and steward is the kind of rock-building life I want to live on. Church, and today, I want to encourage you today, live like he is Lord, live like he's master, live like he's owner, and assume your space as steward. The lordship, stewardship, partnership was God's intended 
purpose for us. Can we give God a big shout of praise? This so radically changed, it changed the way that I thought. I sleep so much better knowing that He is Lord, that I am subject, that I don't have to be Lord of my life. And the reason why so many of us live with great stress is because you live like it's all on you. You're having sleepless nights because you think that it all belongs to you and you have all of it to lose. Oh, you guys getting real quiet now. I'm going to talk to this side. <laughs> the genius of God is to restore himself and his lordship back into our lives. He didn't just come to save you from sin. He came to restore order back into your life. He came to restore your position, your rightful position, the best life that you were called to live, to the kind of life that builds your life on rock kind of life, is to defer to him as Lord and you as steward. And God knows that the, the, since the day sin entered into our nature, we would struggle with this lordship, stewardship, partnership. And because he knew that this would be our struggle, in his kindness, he instituted the genius of the tithe. He instituted the genius of the tithe. The word tithe was not translated, but it was transliterated. It literally means a tenth. It was not, uh, there was no new English word that was, that was found for it. The word tithe is the original word, transliterated. It means a tenth. And in the Bible, we see words like first fruits and tithing and things like in Proverbs 3 verse 9, to honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first or the first increase of your crops. Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. It is the my part, your part bit. Come on, hello, are you out there? Bring the whole tithe, my part. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. That, that's his part. But this, these analogies were, had agricultural edges to it because that was what it was like in biblical times. But we need to understand the principle is powerful. God instituted the tithe to remind us who is Lord and Master and who is the true owner of all that we think we have. Chrissy and I tithe on all our income. It's not, it's not just a tenth, but our first tenth. What does that mean? It means that before Netflix and, and Disney Plus and Vodafone and Synergy and Alinta and all our other financial commitments and subscriptions get our income, God gets returned a tenth of what is rightfully His. It all belongs to God. He gets our first tenth. We then get to steward nine-tenths of it. It's an absolute genius of God because every time our family tithes, we are reminded that it all belongs to Him. He is owner or Lord, Kyrios. We are oikonomia. We are the Samar. We are the stewards. And we get it. Tithing is not easy because if it was, everyone would do it. But it is not. We get it. But truth is truth nevertheless, and we've got to preach it. We tithe on all our increase. Last year, we sold um, our, our house. We've been married for 23 years this year, and we've only lived in two houses, the one that we're living in now and the house that we lived in when we first got married. So after 16, 17 years of living in our house, that house that we bought in 1999, we sold last year, and we made some money on it. And we praise God for the incredible work of the real estate agent, and, and God bless, fantastic, amazing, until I realized how much I had to tithe on the increase. It was challenging, but it was a reminder that that house belonged to God too. That house belonged to God too. This has been one of the most mistaught, misunderstood, disagreed with revelations 
in Scripture. Many noted scholars, many more studied than I, have argued that, oh, you know, tithing is, is an Old Testament thing. Uh, it, it's not something New Testament Christians do. We, we, we should disregard it. If that is what you've been taught, if that is what you think, if that is the framework, let me, let me just, just encourage you to actually look at Scripture holistically. Tithing appeared way before the law. The law simply instituted it. Cain and Abel brought their first fruits of their increase to the Lord. It was that, that second generation. As soon as sin entered into the world, God had instituted that first, the bringing of the first increase because it all belonged. God was trying to give us a foretaste of what it's like to restore lordship back. And I wish I had more time to, to unpack it. But Abraham, way before the law, he tithed in faith. He tithed to Melchizedek, Genesis 14, verse, verse 20. You've got to remember that this is, this is a, a conversation that God has been having with humanity. The law simply instituted it to ensure that there was a pattern or a habit as God's people had started to rebel against him. There was this pattern or habit that God had encouraged his people to observe. If Jesus is Lord, he has to help remind us that he is. Do you understand that there are two things in scripture that God instituted to remind us constantly today that he is Lord? Firstly, it's the partaking of the communion. And secondly, it's the tithe. How many of you love taking communion? That's really meaningful to you. You love taking communion. We love it because it's taking. We miss it when we don't do it. We love it. Oh my God, it just makes me feel so good when I take communion because it's taking. It reminds us of His Lordship, absolutely. People complain when we don't take communion. No one complains when we don't take up the offering. Communion and tithing is a reminder that He is... Uh, you guys are getting too quiet for me. Come on. It's a reminder that He is Lord. It's a reminder to us that He is Lord of all. And, and I think there is often unnecessarily too much conjecture on tithing amongst modern Christians. In fact, it's a 21st century Western Christian thing because the early church Christians never... There is no evidence of them arguing about this. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament Christians were navigating... Questions like, do we still circumcise? Do we not circumcise? Do we eat food that has been, been, um, been given to idol worship or do we not? Is that okay to do this and do that? But they've never argued about tithing because it was always a given. This argument about whether we should tithe or not is purely a 21st century Western Christian question. So to ask the question, does the Bible say that New Testament believers like that? Does it say that modern people need to tithe? Is the wrong question. The question is, is he our Lord? And if he is, am I a good steward? If you're asking, should I be tithing? That's the wrong question. Ask yourself, is he your Lord? Does it all belong to him? Because if it did, then none of tithing would be an issue. The New Testament church never argued about this stuff because they were completely given to the Lordship of Christ. Many of them died for their faith. You think giving a tenth was an issue? Hello? Their relatives were being fed to lions. Their church pastors were being beheaded. You think they're squandering about $98.44 out of their wage for this week? No. No, because it was a lordship issue that we struggle with. The reason why we struggle with tithing is because money is our life in exchangeable form. It really is. It's what you've got to show for all of the, 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 the waking hours of the study and the, the uni and the, you know, going to work and all of that sort of stuff. And, and the, the, the reason why we struggle with it is because... We feel so personally connected with it. It's our life in exchangeable form. So when we can't commit 
our life to Him. It's a lordship issue, not a finance issue. This is the spider that I'm going after. And if you're not there with it, keep your 10%. God doesn't need that hate from you. He doesn't need that kind of angst. Just, just keep it. Just get on the journey. But what I'm asking you to do is get on the journey of lordship. Get on the journey of, are you my curios? Are you my master? Uh, am, am I going to build my life on rock? Am I, if, if I say Lord, if I sing Lord, if I pray Lord, then, then am I doing as you say I should be doing because you know best and you want me to build my life on rock? See, when it comes to lordship, the reason why we struggle with tithing and we find, try and find loopholes, is it Old Testament, New Testament, is because we struggle to submit and commit our lives to Him when there is a perceived sense of loss. How many of you have days off in the week like you actually have a Saturday off? Do you know that's an Old Testament law, the Sabbath? You quite happily observe that. That's not even a tenth of you. You're not, you're not taking one day off in ten days. You're taking two out of seven. I'll take that. Right? No one's questioning whether it's, it's Old Testament. That, that is a sub, having a Sabbath is Old Testament, but we'll take that because there's a perceived sense of gain. The reason why we struggle with tithing is because there's a perceived sense of loss, but it's a very short-sighted way to see it. Thank God He reminds us that He is Lord, and this is not a popular sermon, and people have shouted me out of the pulpit. People have left our church on the basis of this. I'm asking you, don't leave church. You can't you can leave if you want. It's not a cult, right? <laughs> Go if you want. That's fine. But I want you to consider the lordship issue. Is that okay? I want you to consider whether he's lord of your life because ultimately this is the place that we're all, when we stand before Jesus, the divine accolade, the one sentence we want to hear from him is, well done, my good and faithful owner. Well done, my good and faithful property developer. Well done, my good and faithful kicks collection guy. Well done, my good and faithful... Travel buddy. He says, well, no, my good and faithful servant is another word for steward. Yes. Same word, oikonomia. Well done, my good and faithful oikonomia. I have observed your life, and you've clearly called me Lord, but done what I've said. And you've observed the lordship of me in your life and built the foundations of your life on rock and not on sand well done. And when I die and I finish my time on this earth, I have but one desire, and it's to get the, the divine accolade of well done, my good and faithful servant. And my job as your leader is to lead you to a place where Jesus just isn't your Savior, but is also your Lord. I need a resounding amen from somebody today. Right. Do you know the reason why I'm coming to a close with this? The reason why so many of us struggle with the tithe is we struggle with who is master of our lives. Do you know there is a war on all our Christian lives for the mastery of it? Jesus actually said this, Luke 16, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. If I can trust you with a tenth, I can trust you with a nine-tenth. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve 
two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they, they sneered. They jeered him. They despised him. They tried to find loopholes. If you think tithing is religious, I promise you now, religious people hate it. It's heart people love it. Notice how Jesus didn't pit mastery over your life against the mastery. He doesn't pit the mastery of your life against love for your wife, love for your husband, love for your children, or your time. The number one competition for the mastery of our lives, in Jesus' mind, is money. Because it's our life in exchangeable form. But the tithe restores us back to who was Lord. I'm so grateful for the tithe. As I am for communion as I am for the Sabbath, as I am for prayer, as I am for worship. All of the things that we, we say the Old, is Old Testament law, they just regulated God's heart for His people. It was a foretaste of when it is all under the Lordship of Christ, we say yes to it. See, the, 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 you need to understand, just like everything else that I teach pertaining to God's best for us, tithing, fasting, prayer, worship, purity, none of those things are obligations. They are an opt-in life. When you leave from church today across all our campuses, you can do whatever you want with your body. You can put in, into your body whatever you want. You can sleep with whoever you want. No one's going to check in on you or check up on you. Only God knows. My job is to tell you the truth in the hope that you will live it. My job is to preach to you what the Bible says, and maybe it will take root somehow in your life. But it's an opt-in life. No one's no one going to check up whether you're tired. No one checks in whether you sleep with 10 different people this week. That's your business. That's between you and God. And that my friend, should wake you up. It is between you and God. That should awaken you, that it is between. I'm not your Lord, He is. I'm simply pointing you to truth because at the end of the day, you get to choose what you do, but it is between you and the Lord. And so my prayer for you today, it's not a sermon about money, it's a sermon about Lordship. Money just reveals who is your Lord. Your tithe reveals your heart. What a great reminder. What a great reminder.